Travelcast B-Sides, Episode 76, Sad Dark Thing, by Michael Marshall Smith. Hope you're in the mood for some existential creep, folks, because this story brings it. Novelist, short story writer, and screenwriter Michael Marshall Smith is the winner of the August Derleth, the International Horror Guild, and the Philip K. Dick Award, in addition to the British Fantasy Award winner for Best Short Story more times to date than any other author in history. Michael's also an internationally best-selling writer who's also the writer of the BBC show Intruders. Find out more about him at michaelmarshallsmith.com. Our story is read to you by voice actor, writer, and producer Christopher Phipps. Find out more about how you can book him at IMDb's website by searching for Christopher Phipps. That's P-H-I-P-P-S. And without further ado, we bring you Sad Dark Thing by Michael Marshall Smith. Sad Dark Thing by Michael Marshall Smith Aimless, a short, simple word. It means without aim, where aim derives from the notion of calculation with a view to action. Lacking purpose or direction, therefore, without a considered goal. People mainly use a word in a blunt, softened fashion. They walk aimlessly down the street, unsure whether to have a coffee or check out the new magazines in the bookstore, or maybe sit on that bench and watch the world go by. It's not a big deal, this form of aimlessness. It's a temporary state, and often comes with a side order of ease. An hour without something hanging over you, time spent with no great duty to do, or achieve anything in particular. In this world of busy lives and do this and do that, that sounds pretty good. But being wholly without purpose, with no direction home, that's not such a good deal. Being truly aimless is like being dead. It may even be the same thing, or worse. It is the aimless who find the wrong roads and drive down them, simply because they have nowhere else to go. Miller usually found himself driving on Saturday afternoons. He could make the morning go away by staying in bed an extra half hour, hiding away straight emails, spending time on the deck, looking out over the forge with a magazine or the iPad, and a succession of coffees. He made the coffees a machine that sat on the kitchen counter and cost nearly $800. It made a very good cup of coffee. It should. It had cost nearly $800. By noon, a combination of caffeine and other factors would mean he wasn't very hungry. He would go back indoors nonetheless and put together a plate from the fridge. The ingredients would be things he gathered from delis up in San Francisco during the week, or else from the new leaf markets in Santa Cruz or Felton, as he returned home on Friday afternoon. The idea was this would constitute a treat and remind him of the good things in life. That was the idea. He would also pour some juice into one of the only two glasses in the cabinet that got into use. The other was a scotch glass, the one with a faded white logo on it but this only came out in the evenings. He was very firm about that. He would bring the plate and glass back out and eat on the table, which stood further along the deck from the chair in which he'd spent most of the morning. 
By then, the sun would have moved around and the table got shade, which he preferred when he was eating. The change in position was also supposed to make it feel like he was doing something different, though it did not especially. He was still a man sitting in silence on a raised deck, within view of many trees, eating expensive foods that tasted like cardboard. Afterward, he took the plate indoors and washed it in the sink. He had a dishwasher, naturally. Dishwashers are there to save time. He washed the plate and silverware by hand, watching the water swirl away and then drying everything and putting it to one side. He was down a wife and a child, now living 300 miles away. He was short on women and children, therefore, but in their place, from the hollows they left behind, he had time. Time crawled in an endless parade of minutes from between those cracks, arriving like an army of little black ants crawling up over his skin, up his face, and into his mouth, ears, and eyes. So why not wash the plate, and the knife, and the fork, and the glass? Hold back the ants, for a few minutes at least. On those afternoons, he was truly aimless. From where the house stood, high in the Santa Cruz Mountains, he could have reached a number of diverting places within an hour or two. San Jose, Saratoga, Los Gatos, Santa Cruz itself, then south to Monterey, Carmel, and Big Sur. Even way down to Los Angeles, if he felt like making a weekend of it. And then what? Instead, he simply drove. There are only so many major routes you can take through the area's mountains and redwood forests. Highway 17 and 9, or the road out to Bonnie Dune, Route 1, north or south. Of these, 17 is the one of any real size. In between the main thoroughfares, however, there are other options. Roads that don't do much except connect one minor two-lane highway to another. Roads that used to count for something before modern alternatives came along to supplant or supersede or negate them. Side roads, old roads, forgotten roads. Usually there wasn't much to see down them, Stretches of forest, maybe a stream, eventually a house, well back from the road. Rural, mountainous back roads where the tree and poison oak reigned supreme. Chains across tracks which led down or up into the woods, some gentle inclines, others pretty steep, meandering off towards some house which stood even further from the through lines, back in a 20 or 50 acre lot. Every now and then you'd pass one of the area's few tourist traps like the mystery spot, an old-fashioned affair which claimed to honor a site of unfathomable weirdness, but in fact paid cheerful homage to geometry and to man's willingness to be deceived. He'd seen all these long ago, the local attractions with his wife and child, the shadowed roads and tracks on his only solitaire excursions over the last few months. At least he might have thought he would have seen them all. Every Saturday he drove, however, and every time he found a road he had never seen before. Today, the road goes off Branciford Drive, the long, old highway which leads off through largely uncolonized regions of the mountains and forests in the southeast. As he drove north along it, mined elsewhere and nowhere, he noticed a turning. 
A glance in the rearview mirror showed no one behind, and so we slowed to peer along the turn. A two-lane road, overhung with tall trees, including some redwoods. It gave no indication of leading anywhere at all. Fine by him. He made the turn and drove on. The trees were tall and thick, cutting off much of the light from above. The road passed smoothly up and down, curving abruptly once in a while to avoid the trunk of an especially big tree or to skirt a small canyon carved out over millennia by some small and bloody-minded stream. There were no houses or other signs of habitation. It could be public land, though I didn't recall there being any around here and hadn't seen any indication of a park boundary. And then he saw a sign by the road up ahead. Stop! That's all it said. But despite himself, he found he was doing just that, pulling over toward it. When the car was stationary, he looked at the sign curiously. It had been hand-lettered some time ago in black marker felt on a panel cut from a cardboard box and nailed to a tree. He looked back the way he'd come, then up the road once more. He saw no traffic in either direction, and also no indication of why the side would be here. Sure, the road curved again, about 40 yards ahead, but no more markedly than it had 10 or 15 times since he'd left Branch of Fort Drive. Then he realized that, further on, there was in fact a turning off of the road. He took his foot off the brake and let the car roll forward down the slope, crunching over twigs and gravel. A driveway, it seemed, though a long one, bending off into the trees. Single lane, roughly made up. Maybe five yards down, it was another sign, evidently the work of the same craftsman as the previous one. Tourist welcome, he grunted, in something like a laugh. If you had yourself some kind of attraction, then of course tourists were welcome. What would be the point otherwise? It was a strange way of putting it. No indication of what was in store or why a busy family should turn off what was already a pretty minor road and head off into the woods. No lure except those two words. They were working on him, though. He had to admit it. He eased his foot gently back on the gas and carefully directed the car along the track between the trees. After about a quarter of a mile, he saw a building ahead. A couple of them, in fact, arranged in a loose compound. One, a ramshackle two-story farmhouse. The other, a disused barn. There was also something that was or had been a garage with a broken-down truck tractor parked diagonally in front of it. It was parked insofar as it was not moving, at least, not in the sense that whoever had last driven the thing had made any effort when abandoning it to align its form with anything. The surfaces of the vehicle were dusty and rusted. A wooden crate, about four foot square, stood rotting in the back. The rear front tire was flat. The track ended in a widened parking area, big enough for four or five cars. It was empty. There was no sign of life at all, in fact, but something, he wasn't sure what, said this habitation was still a going concern rather than a collection of ruins that someone had walked away from at some point in the last few years. Nailed to a tree in front of the main house was another cardboard sign. Welcome. He parked, turned off the engine, and got out. It was very quiet. It usually is in these mountains, when you're away from the road. 
Sometimes you hear the faint roar of an airplane way up above, but apart from that, it's just the occasional tweet of some winged creature or indistinct rustle as something small and furry or scaly makes its way through the bushes. He stood a few minutes, flapping his hand to discourage a noisy fly which appeared from nowhere, bothered his face, and then zipped chaotically off. Eventually he called out, Hello! You'd think that on what was evidently a very slow day for this attraction, whatever it was, the sound of an arriving vehicle would have someone bustling into sight, eager to make a few bucks to pitch their wares. He stood a few minutes more, however, without seeing or hearing any sign of life. It figured. Aimless people find aimless things, and it didn't seem like much was going to happen here. He turned back toward the car, aware that he wasn't even feeling disappointment. He hadn't expected much, and that's exactly what he got. As he held up his hand to press the button to unlock the doors, he heard a creaking sound. He turned back to see there was now a man on the tilting porch that ran along half of the front of the wooden house. He was dressed in canvas jeans and a vest that had probably once been white. The man had probably once been clean, too, though he looked now like he'd spent most of the morning trying to fix the underside of a car. Perhaps he had. What do you want? His voice was flat and unwelcoming. He looked to be in his mid-late fifties. Hair once black was now half gray and also none too clean. He did not seem like he'd been either expecting or desirous of company. What have you got? The man on the porch leant on the rail and kept looking at him, but said nothing. It says, um, tourists welcome, Miller said when it became clear the local had nothing to offer. <clears throat> Look, um, I'm not feeling especially welcome to, to be honest. Christ, the boy was supposed to take down those damn signs. Still up? Yes. And the one out in the road says stop. Yes, Miller said. Otherwise, I wouldn't have stopped. The man swore and shook his head. Told the boy weeks ago. Told him I don't know how many times. Miller frowned. You don't notice when you drive in and out that the signs are still there? I haven't been in town in a while. Well, look, I, I turned on your road because it looked like there was something to see. Nope, don't say anything like that. It's implied, though, wouldn't you say? The man lifted his chin a little. You a lawyer? No, no, I'm a businessman with uh, time on my hands. Look, is there something to see here or not? After a moment, the man on the porch straightened and came walking down the steps. One dollar, he said, as you're here. For what, the parking? The man stared at him as if he was crazy. No, to see. One dollar? It seemed inconceivable that in this day and age there would be anything under the sun for a dollar, especially if it was trying to present as something worth experiencing. Really? That's cheap, the man said, misunderstanding. Well, it is what it is, Miller said, getting his wallet out and pulling a dollar bill from it. The other man laughed, a short, sour sound. You got that right. After he'd taken the dollar and stuffed it into one of the pockets of his jeans, the man walked away. Miller took this to mean that he should follow, and so he did. It looked for a moment as if they were headed toward the house. Then the path, such as it was, took an abrupt right onto a course that led between the house and the tilting barn. 
The house was large, gabled, and must have been quite something at one time. Lord knows what it was doing out here, lost by itself, in a patch of forest that had never been near a major road or town or any place else that people with money might wish to be. The man led the way through slender trunks into an area around the back of the barn. Though the land in front of the house and around the side had barely been what you'd think of as tamed, there the forest abruptly came into its own. Trees of significant size shot up all around, looking, as redwoods do, like they'd been there since the dawn of time. A sharp, rocky incline led down toward a stream about 30 yards away. The stream was perhaps eight feet across with steep sides. A rickety bridge of old gray wood lay across it. The man led him to the near side of this and then stopped. What? This is it. Miller looked again at the bridge. A dollar to look at a bridge some guy threw up 50 years ago? The man handed him a small, tarnished key and raised his other arm to point. Between the trees on their side of the creek was a small hut. It's in there. What is? The man shrugged. A sad, dark thing. The water which trickled below the bridge smelled fresh and clean. Miller got a better look at the hut, shed, whatever, when he reached the other side. It was about half the size of a log cabin, but made of gray, battered planks instead of logs. Could be an original settler's cabin. The home of whichever long-ago pioneer had first arrived there, driven west by hope or desperation. It looked about contemporary with the rickety bridge, certainly. There was a small padlock on the door. He looked back. The man was still standing at the far end of the bridge, looking at the canopy of leaves above. It wasn't clear what he'd be looking at, but it didn't seem like he was waiting for the right moment to rush over, bang the other guy in the head, and steal his wallet. I mean, if he wanted to do that, he could have done it back at the house. There was no sign of anyone else around, like this boy he mentioned, for example. Miller turned back and fitted the key in the lock. It was stiff, but it turned. He opened the door. Inside was total dark. He hesitated, looked back across the bridge, but the man had gone. He opened the door further and stepped inside. The interior of the cabin was cooler than it had been outside, but also stuffy. There was a faint smell, not a bad smell particularly. It was like old, damp leaves. It was like the back of a closet where you store things you do not need. It was like a corner of the attic of a house, not much loved, in the night after rain. The only light was that which managed to get past him from the door behind. The cabin had no windows, or if it had, they had been covered over. The door he had entered by was right at one end of the building, which meant the rest of the interior led ahead. It could only have been 10, 12 feet. It seemed longer because it was so dark. The man stood there, not sure what would happen next. The door slowly swung closed behind him, not all the way, but leaving a gap of a couple of inches. In a while, there was a quiet sound. It was a rustling, not quite a shuffling, a sense of something moving a little at the far end, turning away from the wall, perhaps. Just after the sound, there was a low waft of a new odor 
as if the movement had caused something to change its relationship to the environment, as if a body, long held, curled, or crouched in a particular shape or position, had realigned enough for hidden sweat to be released into the unmoving air. Miller froze. In all his life, he never felt the hairs on the back of his neck rise. You read about it, heard about it. You knew those hairs were supposed to do it, but he never felt it. Not his own hairs, on his own neck. They did it then, though. And the peculiar thing was that he was not afraid, or at least not only that. He was in there with something that was for certain. It was not a known thing either. It was that he didn't know. He wasn't sure. He just knew there was something over there in the darkness. Something about the size of a man, he thought. Or maybe a little smaller. Well, he wasn't sure if it was male, though. Something said to him it was probably female. He couldn't imagine where this impression might be coming from, as he couldn't hear anything either. After the initial movement, it had been still. There was just something in the air that told him things about it, that said, underneath the shadows, it wrapped around itself like a pair of dark angel's wings. That it knew despair, bitter madness, and melancholy, better even than he did. He knew that beneath those shadows, it was naked and not male. He knew also that it was this and not fear that was making his breathing come ragged and forced. He stayed in there with it for half an hour, doing nothing, just listening, staring into the darkness, but not seeing anything. He closed the cabin door behind him, but he did not lock it, because he saw that the man was back, standing once more at the far end of the bridge. Miller clasped the key firmly in his fist, walked over toward him. How much? he said. For what? You already paid. No, Miller said. I want to buy it. It was eight by the time Miller got back to his house. He didn't know how that could be unless he spent longer in the cabin than he realized. It didn't matter a whole lot, and in fact there were good things about it. The light had begun to fade. In twenty minutes, it would be gone entirely. He spent those minutes sitting in the front seat of the car, waiting for darkness, his mind as close to a comfortable blank as it had been in a long time. When it was finally dark, he got out of the car and went over to the house. He dealt with the security system, opened the front door, and left it hanging open. He walked back to the vehicle, went around to the trunk. He rested his hand on the metal there for a moment, and it felt cold. He unlocked the back and turned away, not fast, but naturally, and walked toward the wooden steps which led to the smaller of the two raised decks. He walked up them and stood there for a few minutes, looking out into the dark stand of trees, and then turned and headed back down the steps toward the car. The trunk was empty now, and so he shut it, and walked slowly toward the open door of the house, and went inside and shut and locked that door behind him too. It was night and it was dark, and they were both inside, and that felt right. He poured a small scotch into a large glass, 
He took it out through the sliding glass doors to the chair on the main deck where he'd spent the morning and sat cradling the drink, taking a sip once in a while. He found himself remembering, as he often did at this time of the day, the first time he met his wife. He'd been living down on East Cliff then, in a house which was much smaller than this one, but only a couple of minutes' walk from the beach. Late one Saturday afternoon, bored and restless, he'd taken a walk to the Crow's Nest, the big restaurant that was the only place to eat or drink along that stretch. He bought a similar scotch at the upstairs bar and taken it out on the balcony to watch the sun go down over the harbor. After a while, he noticed that amongst the family groups of sunburned tourists and not-so-tattooed locos, there was a woman at a table by herself. She had a tall glass of beer and seemed to be doing the same thing he was, and he wondered why. Not why she was doing it, but why he was, why they both were. He did not know then, and did not know now, why people sit and look out into the distance by themselves, or what they hope to see. After a couple more drinks, he went over and introduced himself. Her name was Catherine, and she worked at the university. They got married 18 months later, and though by then his business had taken off in the meantime, he could have afforded anywhere in town, but hired out the crow's nest and had the wedding party there. A year after that, their daughter was born, and they called her Matilda, after Catherine's mother, who was French. Business was still good, and they moved out of this place on East Cliff and into the big house he had built in the mountains. And for seven years, all was good. And then for some reason, it was no longer good anymore. He didn't think it had been his fault, though it could have been. He didn't think it was her fault either, though that too was a possibility. It had simply stopped working. They'd been two people, and then one, and then two again, facing different ways. There had been no infidelity. In some ways, that might have been easier. It would have been something to react to, to blame, to hide behind. Far worse, in fact, to sit on opposite sides of the breakfast table and wonder who the other person was, and why they were there, and worse, when they would go. Six months later, she did. Matilda went with her, of course. He didn't think there was much more that could be said or understood on the subject. As time went on, the story seemed to get shorter and shorter. As they said around these parts, it is what it is, or it was what it was. Time passed, and then it was late. The scotch was long gone, but he didn't feel the desire for more. He took the glass indoors and washed it at the sink putting it on the draining board next to the plate and the knife and the fork from the lunch. No lights were on. He hadn't bothered to flick on any switches when he had come in and, having sat for so long out on the deck, his eyes were accustomed and he felt no need to turn on any now. He dried his hands on the cloth and walked around the house, aimlessly at first. He had done this many times in the last few months, hearing echoes. When he got to the area which had been Catherine's study, he stopped. There's nothing left in the space now, bar the empty desk and the empty bookshelves. He could tell that the chair had been moved. He didn't recall precisely how it had been, or when he'd last listlessly walked this way, but he knew that it had been moved somehow. He went back to walking, and eventually fetched up outside the room that had been Matilda's. The door was slightly ajar, the space beyond was dark. 
He could feel warmth coming out of it, thought and heard a sound there, something quiet. And he turned and walked slowly away. He took a shower in the dark. Afterward, he padded back to the kitchen, the bare feet in a gown, picked his scotch glass up from the draining board. Even after many, many trips through the dishwasher, you could see the ghost of the restaurant logo that had once been stamped on it, the remains of a mast in a crow's nest. Catherine had slipped it into her purse one long ago night without him knowing about it and given the glass to him as an anniversary present. How did a person who could do something like that change in the person now living half the state away? He didn't know, any more than he knew why he had so little say on the phone to his daughter or why people sat and looked at views or why they drove nowhere on Saturday afternoons. Our heads turn and point at things. Light comes into our eyes. Words come out of our mouths. And then, and so, Carefully, he brought the edge of the glass down upon the edge of the counter. It broke pretty much as he had hoped it would, the base remaining in one piece, the sides shattering into several jagged points. He padded back through into the bedroom, put the glass in the nightstand, took off the robe, and lay back on the bed. That's how they'd always done it, and they wanted to signal that tonight didn't have to be just about going to sleep. A short distance for shared language. There's something a little sadder, though, than a tongue for which only one speaker remains. He closed his eyes, and after a while, for the first time since he'd stood stunned in the driveway and watched his family drive away, he cried. Afterwards, he lay awake and waited. She came in the night. Three days later, in the late afternoon, a battered truck pulled down into the driveway and parked alongside the car that was there. It was the first time the truck had been on the road in nearly two years, and the driver left the engine running when he got out because he wasn't sure it would start up again. The patched tire was holding up for now. He went around the back and opened up the wooden crate, propping the flap with a stick. Then he walked over to the big front door and rang the doorbell waited a while, and did it again. No answer, of course. He rubbed his face in his hands, wearily took a step back. The door looked solid. No way a kick would get it open. He looked around and saw the steps up to the side deck. When he got to the back of the house, he picked up the chair that sat by itself, hefted it to judge the weight, and threw it through the big glass door. When he'd satisfied himself that the hole in the smashed glass was big enough, he walked back along the deck and around the front and then up the driveway to stand on the road for a while, out of view of the house. He smoked a cigarette and then another to be sure. And when he came back down the driveway, he was relieved to see that the flap on the crate on the back of the truck was now closed. He climbed into the cab and sat for a moment, looking at the big house. Then he put the truck into reverse, got back up the highway and drove slowly home. When he made the turn into his own drive later, he saw the stop sign was still there. Didn't matter how many times he told the boy, the sign was still there. He drove along the track to the house, parked the truck. He opened the crate without looking at it and went inside. Later, sitting on his porch in the darkness, 
He listened to the sound of the wind booming through the tops of the trees. He drank a warm beer and another. He looked at the grime on his hands. He wondered what it was that made some people catch sight of the sign when it was in their eyes, what it was in the way they looked that made them see. He wondered how the man in the big house had done it and hoped he had not suffered much. He wondered why he had never attempted the same thing. He wondered why it was only in nights like these that he was able to remember that his boy had been dead 20 years. Finally, he went indoors and lay in bed, staring at the ceiling. He did this every night, even though there was never anything to see. Nothing unless it is that sad, dark thing that eventually takes us in its arms and makes us sleep. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Drabblecast B-Sides is a feed of exclusive premium content stories prepared just for you that you won't find anywhere else on the internet. We appreciate your support of the Drabblecast as a Drabblecast member, and we couldn't do this without you. Special thanks to Bo Kyer, our awesome episode artist this week. Find more about Bo's creepy, in-the-dark, caged woman coming out to haunt people Instagram stuff by searching on Instagram, quickly typing in Bo Kier. That's K-A-I-E-R. He's the Drabblecast art director, and every week he cranks out awesome, weird, screwed up stuff on his Instagram. You might want to follow him there to find it. It's awesome. And once again, thank you for supporting the Drabblecast. We couldn't do this without you, and I mean that sincerely. Rosemary, my desire to hold you is deep And it keeps me from living And it keeps me from sleeping Am I holding on so tight that my fingers might bleed If I let go of you now Will you let go of me?